chapter number 10, marriage and divorce. What a topic. Yeah, what a topic today. We're going to have a great time in the Word of God today. We're going to have a good time. And so let's turn there, Mark chapter number 10. And uh, we'll talk about lots of things today. And uh, this is one of the areas in churches, and especially in Baptist churches, sometimes people are like, why are you so hard on Baptists? Because I am one. I'm not, it's not my job to worry about how Calvary Chapel does their things or other churches do what they do. I am a Baptist. We do not handle this very well in our churches. And sometimes I think that we think that divorce is the unpardonable sin, and it's not. Because it's not the sin that we deal with in our lives, it looks worse in our eyes than other sin, when in reality, sin is sin, and we're going to talk about that today. It's one of those topics that when you dive into marriage, there are those in the room who are single that wish that they were married and want to be married. You mentioned the word divorce, and there's those who have gone through that hard time in their life. And that, wor that word and the thoughts behind it, there's sorrow, there's grief, there's a lot behind it. So the sermon this morning is not one of those that is, that is super easy when you dive into it. All of us each and every day wear multiple hats. You do lots of different things. There are times during the day that I am a husband. There are times during a day where I'm a, where I'm a son. There's a times during the day where I'm a father. There's times during the day I am a pastor. There's times where I am a preacher. There's times, and we can go through the list, we all wear multiple hats at multiple times throughout the day. When we think about it, and when we think about the pastor for a minute, I'm just going to use myself for a minute here and some of the hats that I wear on a given day. I think some people think it'd be easy to be a pastor, and that's good. I'm glad you think that. And uh, I think sometimes you think you sit around all week eating bonbons, writing things on paper on how you're... I haven't had a bonbon in years. That actually sounds kind of good. But I think you just sit and write down words, and then you get up on Sunday, say those words, and that's the gist of your life. That would be nice if that's how it was. But God has called me to be a pastor, and I, I brought up some of my hats I have to give some examples. So, you know, one of the hats I wear is that of being a pastor. And so the Lakers aren't doing too well right now, but that's okay. I'll still wear the hat. And one of the joys of being a pastor is the fact that I get the joy of shepherding God's sheep. And sometimes that involves ministering to people in pain and helping them through the hurts and the heartaches that they go through. 1 Peter chapter number 5, verse number 2 says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And that's one of the aspects of what I get to do. There's another side of it, and I got the lightning bolt on purpose, because that's the preacher hat I get to wear. And not only do I get to minister and help God's people, but I am also called as a preacher to proclaim God's word. This involves faithfully studying God's word so that I communicate what the scriptures say. 
and I'm humbled in this. And the Bible talks about in First Peter chapter 4, verse number 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that's another area of my, that's another hat I wear as a pastor. There's another hat that I wear besides pastor, preacher. I also wear the hat of being a person. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am also a person who has problems, just like the people I minister to. I am a sinner saved by God's grace, just like you are today. We are a church full of sinners in this room. And as we look at this, sometimes these roles between pastor, preacher, and person, there's tension between them. While I'm called as a pastor to be compassionate, uh, to be compassionate, I'm also constrained as a preacher to preach to you what the Word of God says with no apology for what the Word of God says. And in the midst of that, I am also a person who struggles with sin in his own life, just like everyone else in this room. So sometimes these hats, you got to wear them, but you got to be all things to all men. Didn't Paul say something about that? When we come to passages in the Bible that are counter-cultural and maybe even controversial subjects, I'm committed as a preacher to declare what the Word of God says. My aim is to do, to give you the truth in a spirit of grace, knowing that I'm a person that has problems in my life as well. Jesus in his day was not always perfectly correct, was he? But he was always perfectly correct in every situation that he dealt with. And we must settle whether we follow what the Scripture says or what society says. We are not to compromise by caving to culture, nor are we to clobber the sinner as well. Because we're called to be like Jesus, and the Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. The problem we have in Christianity today is we cannot find the balance between those areas. There are some of you in this room you are all truth and no grace. And that's not a good way to live. You struggle with people and their sin when you see them sin. Because you're all truth and no grace. There's a problem with that. And it, your life should not be that way. If you're going to strive to be like Jesus, you need to change that. But also on the other spectrum, we have those who are no truth and all they are is grace. And there's a problem being on that side of the spectrum as well. Because Jesus was full of truth and grace. Remember, just this morning as I was reading through for our yearly reading, read about the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. And Jesus tells them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. They all left. But Jesus looks at her and says, go and sin no more. He recognized her wrong, mentioned the wrong, and he showed her grace. He was full of grace and truth. 
My desire from this pulpit that God's given me and the ministry he's given me is to be full of grace and truth. And I would encourage you this morning as a Christian to be a balanced Christian with grace and truth, to be like Jesus. That's what I think we all should be striving for. Last week we looked at the end of chapter number 9. Today we jump into chapter number 10. And as we dive into chapter number 10 this morning, Next Sunday, we have a missionary here with us, and uh, Brother T.J. Kimmel, he and his family, they've been here a few times. They'll be back here with us next week. And then we're gonna, then that's the week before Thanksgiving. I got a message on Thanksgiving, and then I'm going to do a five-week series on from creation to the coronation of Jesus on Sunday mornings. We're going to take a break from Mark till January 2nd. We'll be back, back into this passage and finish up the book. But as we're here this morning, I want us to notice several things. You know, our topic today, marriage and divorce, comes right from this passage. Just mentioning those words, as I mentioned, brings up some sort of feeling inside of everyone in this room. As I mentioned, there are those who are single that want to be married. There are those who are married who wish they were single. But anyways, we'll leave all that there. And when we look at this today, the U.S. Census Bureau reports that married couples have slipped from nearly 80% in the 1950s to less than 50% today. There's an article a while back that was written about bowling and living alone. And the Wall Street Journal reports that the nuclear family of two parents and their children is no longer the most common living arrangement. The most common living arrangement in America today are single adult households. And as we think about this, many of you this morning, as we talk about marriage or we talk about divorce, many of you have experienced the pains of divorce. It might have been parents for you. It might be yourself and a previous marriage. There's lots of things, and you may have sorrow Feel the loss, regret, relief, anger, guilt, shame, fear, depression, confusion, disappointment, bitterness, or a combustion of all those things around that word of divorce. One pastor says this, he says, there are few things that are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of a personhood unlike any other rational gash. I will also say this morning, as pastor of this church, a thought about this today, I would also say those who have been divorced and gone through a divorce, forgive us as a church for treating you like you're a plague and as an unforgivable sin, like many do. We don't know, I do not know what it is like to go through what you've gone through. And unless you've been there, don't claim you do and how you would handle it. As we dive deeper in today, we're going to see lots of things. I love how someone wrote in their book, Kyle Eidelman wrote this in Grace is Grace, that people need us to raise a hand, not a finger. They need to hear, me too, I'm broken too. If you've divorced, if you've been remarried, God wants to help this marriage be all it can be for him. But I'm going to say some things you might not like this morning. I'm going to say some things that others that have never been divorced, they might not like this morning. 
But I've said it before, and I'll say it over and over again. I am here to please one. And he's there. I will give an account to him for what I say. And some of you sometimes come to me like, I give an account to you, I don't give an account to you. And if you've got questions or you ever question something that I do or how I handle it, come question me all you want. I'm far from perfect and I make mistakes all the time. But at the end of the day, I'm here to please one, and his name is God. We look at verse number one of chapter number 10, and we dive in this morning. You'll notice this is just for side note. Be, you know, Mark just goes right to main point after main point after main point. From the end of chapter number 9 to the beginning of chapter number 10, there's about a five-month period of time that goes unmentioned in the book of Mark. If you want to read what happens between the end of chapter number 9 and going into chapter number 10, read John 7 through 11 and Luke 9 through 18. That's what takes place in that amount of time during that time, just in case you were wondering. We look at verse number 1. It says, And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of, Ses of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they that are no more twain but one flesh, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." And the house his disciples asked him again, saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Today, because, as I mentioned, we're going to be not here for a while, I want to go through verse number 16. And at the end today, I'm going to give you a few thoughts about the Lord blessing the children there. And end on that note. Read verse 13 with me. It says, And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, shall not enter therein. And he took them up into his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. Father, I pray you bless the next few minutes we have here this morning. I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for the privilege and the honor to be able to preach your word. Thank you for the honor it is to be able to pastor and to be able to help these people. And be a part of their lives. I thank you for it. Pray you bless this morning that all that's said and done would bring you honor and bring you glory. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We read right away in verse number one here that Jesus has basically finished his ministry in Galilee. 
And he's making his final trip to Jerusalem. And this is getting ready for the crucifixion and these things to take place. And as they head south towards Jerusalem, they enter Judea and they cross the Jordan River. And this is the route that was taken from Galilee to Jerusalem, which, you know, involved a detour route around Samaria and things. But people, when Jesus came still, they gathered around, crushed in around him. And once again, Jesus began to teach the people. And we see this here, and there's always something we can learn from Jesus, isn't there? Wouldn't it be great if every time we picked up the word of God, we were like these people when they saw Jesus, and we just crowd in and see what we can learn from him. We have his words right here. What a lesson, what a truth that is for us. As we look here this morning, we see, as happened before, this time the Pharisees step up. Those righteous indignants step up, and they set up Jesus trying to trip him up with a question. They're not searching for answers. The Pharisees are not trying to grow in any way. They're looking for a way to trap Jesus in what he does. Look at verse number 2 again. It says, And the Pharisees come to him and ask him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? The word tempting has the idea of testing in a malicious sense. And the tense indicates that they kept asking him. They wanted him up. They wanted to trap Jesus one way or the other right here. Now, as we look at this, some background in the day would help us as we go through here. Divorce was very common in that culture. But there was a lot of controversy that surrounded it. There were two main schools of thought that were championed in that day. And the opinion was in that day that the divorce was only for the husband to do. But there were two rabbis, two different schools of thought. Rabbi Shemaiah, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, taught the divorce was permitted only in, in the event of immorality taking place. That was what Rabbi Shemaiah taught. There was Rabbi Hillel, spelled like hill with an E-L on the end, and he taught that divorce was allowed for almost any reason. A man could divorce his wife if she was talking to another man. If she put too much salt on their food and he didn't like the food, he could divorce his wife. And if she said, nothing, and if she said something unkind to her mother-in-law, the mother of her husband, he could divorce her. Those were the two schools of thought about divorce. Now, as you can imagine, the school of Hellel was much more popular because you could divorce for almost any reason. Where the school of the rabbi Shemaiah, it was a little bit more to it. And so we even see those things, and we see one of the questions that's recorded in Matthew 19.3. It says, the Pharisees also come to him, tempting him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So you see, they're really asking about this thought here that Rabbi Halil had. Some historians have noted that it wasn't uncommon for Roman men to have as many as 20 wives in their lifetime. Divorce was not only prevalent among Jews. You think about this. It wasn't as big around the Jews as it was the Romans, but it was still something that was dealt with. The Pharisees, what they were trying to do right here, they were trying to 
take, make Jesus take a side on the issue. They were trying to divide Jesus with the people that were before him here. There's, and as we look at this, there's one other culture, cultural thing to think about before we get into the message. Jesus is now in the area that is controlled or ruled by Herod Antipas. Herod had committed adultery, divorced his wife, and married Herodias. And there was adultery and divorce on her side as well. John the Baptist spoke up against it. And in the long run, it cost John the Baptist his head for speaking out against it. So the trap was set for Jesus here. One pastor put it like this. He said, if Jesus sided with the liberal school, suddenly the Pharisees would have become conservatives and say Jesus was going against the laws of Moses. If he sided with the conservatives, would say he was going against public opinion. The trap for Jesus was set by the Pharisees. If he condemned divorce, he could suffer the fate of John. If he condoned divorce, he would lose the confidence of the devout people. What do you do in the midst of this? What should Jesus do? He always does the right thing. And I love how Jesus always responds and he turned the table on them by ignoring their question completely. Look back at verse number 2. Verse number 2, look at it again. It says, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? Does Jesus answer that question in verse number 3? No, he does not. What does he say in verse number 3? What did Moses command you? Moses was the Pharisees' go-to man for everything. So Jesus asked them, what did Moses say about the issue? Let me just give you a few quick thoughts about this. And this, I don't even think you have a spot um, there in your notes for this, but this is good for you. If people question you and tempt you with things, I'm going to help you with some things to help you. What does Jesus do with the Pharisees here? The very first thing he does, he takes them to the Bible. It ultimately doesn't matter what public opinion says or what two rabbis say. We must ask the question, what does the Bible say? For every question in life, we need to ask that question. Right and wrong, where we stand on things, what does the Bible say? You notice not only does he take them to the Bible, but he uses the word command. What did Moses command to show that this question cannot be settled by society or by those that are trying to be politically correct in their day. What did Moses command? Also see that he personalizes this to you. The Bible needs to be personally applied. It's not what's your view. What does the Bible say for you? That's the way we need to look at it. As we dive in this morning, and we'll move quickly through our notes, we'll see the Pharisees, they summarize the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and verse number 4. They say, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Now the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is the passage that they're referring back to, when a man hath taken a wife and married her, 
And it shall come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. This is the passage, and there's more that you can read there in those verses. This is the passage that Jesus was questioning the Pharisees about. And this is where the Pharisees, this is what they were saying in verse number 4, where they mentioned the fact that Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement. As we look at this, you've got to understand something. Do you see, Jesus said, what did the Bible, what did Moses command? The word suffer means to allow, in verse number 4. So, what they're doing is, they're looking for a loophole. Jesus calls them out on their sloppy Bible study methods by pointing out that Deuteronomy 24 does not condone divorce, but it more controls how divorce is done. It does not condone, it controls. We'll see that more in a few more minutes. Because divorce had become so rampant, Moses gave some regulations to make sure a wife who was divorced by her husband was not left destitute. In order to protect these women, Moses told them that a wife must be given a divorce certificate so that she would not be thrown out on the streets with no hope of remarrying or anything of that. And there's other things we'll get deeper into later. But look at what verse 5 says. Look at what Jesus says. And Jesus answered and said to them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. The word hardness means stiffening of the heart. And so I like what Jesus does. He turns the conversation from a discussion on divorce to God's divine design for marriage. He reframes the question from, when is it okay to divorce, to say, what does God say about marriage? That's what we see in this passage. And so the religious leaders are all caught up on what the current culture says about divorce. And when they consult with the Bible, they look for something to line up with what they already believe. But Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis and sets up and explains to them how marriage was meant to be. Let's dive in today. And one of the things that you'll see, this is something that would help our society today. You look there at verse number 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's it. There's no other. You're not binary. You're not whatever. You're, gen you're not genderless. He made them male and female. Culture, our world doesn't like that today. But guess what? It's still right. That's how God made it. There's no other way. That's how God made it to be. As we look this morning, I want to give you some things about marriage today to be a help. Number one, when we look at these verses and we continue on, the first thing we see, the importance of leaving. Leaving. Leaving, verse number, so it says there in verse number 5, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. Once again, we clearly see from God's original design that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman for life. We must always choose the scripture over what society says. The Bible does not allow for a same-sex marriage. That's not Bible. It goes contrary to God's word. The Hebrew word for leave is a strong one. It means to cut off, abandon, forsake, leave behind. When you this is what you're supposed to do. You're to leave your parents. That's what this means. You're supposed to sever the emotional cord, your umbilical cord, or whatever you want to call it. Because your loyalty does not belong to mom and dad anymore. It belongs to your spouse. Your partner, your mate, should never have to compete with your parents. That never should take place. Now, leaving your parents doesn't mean that you ignore them or that you don't spend any time with them. It means that your marriage creates a new family, and that new family must have a higher priority than mom and dad. God's design for marriage, number one, is leaving. Number two, cleaving. Cleaving. Jesus said, then said, right there in verse number seven, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You see that there? That's committed to the permanence of it. To cleave literally means to permanently glue together. It's like taking two, two separate entities and melting them together to form one thing. The idea is of joining two things so tightly they cannot be separated without damaging both of them. It's similar to like welding something together or cemented together. It's a unique joining of two people into one entity. It's something that God helps do. God has glued the two together so they become one. That's why divorce is so devastating. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. It's pretty easy to get married. It's the living together afterwards that causes all the problems. Four thoughts on marriage. Number one, the leaving. Number two, the cleaving. Number three, the weaving. Look at what it says in verse number eight. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. Once leaving and cleaving takes place, then you can experience weaving as you become one flesh. And this phrase, this phase, conveys the idea of oneness. It's the unity that's supposed to be experienced emotionally, spiritually, physically. God's math for marriage is a little different than our common math. For us, one plus one equals two, right? God's marriage math, are you ready? One plus one equals one. God's objective for marriage is a loving relationship of oneness. The idea of oneness affirms marriage. To become one flesh is a lifelong process that takes place. And according to Ephesians 5.32, it's a great mystery. 
Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Think about this. In a contract, two parties remain separate. Kind of like water and oil. They're shaken up but not mixed together. Left alone, they'll eventually separate from their, to their original respective parts. In a covenant, the two become one and the same. It's kind of like mashed potatoes. You could take one sweet potato. That would be Caroline in our marriage. And you take a rotten potato, I mean a, a regular potato. You could mash them together. Make them one. And you take two and it becomes one. Think of that when you make mashed potatoes. That's what God wants to do. My parents, this Tuesday will be 59 years that they've been married. And my mom's health, since I was a teenager, since I was 16, so we're talking 20 years now, has not been great. And my dad, 10 years ago, retired just to take care of her. My dad takes care of the house and cleans the house. My dad makes my mom every meal she eats. My dad helps her with all the things she needs help with that I shouldn't even mention in here. There's little to none my mom can do on her own. And if something happened to my dad, he'll be 80 in a few weeks. My mom wouldn't know what to do. One of the things my mom struggles with with all is she used to cook all the meals. She used to clean the house. She used to do all those things, and now she can't. And my dad's response is, you did it all those years. I'm just making up for all those years you did it for me. You ask him, what's the secret to being able to take care of your wife all these years? And his response, if Christ loved me the way he loves me, I can love too. And I've never seen a better marriage. And as if, did I ever see things? Yeah, I've, I've seen them yell at one another. I've seen, I've seen some things through my years. They've been married 59 years. They love one another. They need each other. They're doing, they're, this weaving thing is working in their lives. Reminds me of what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, chapter number 4, verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving describes what marriage should look like. Marriage vows are broken. It leads to point number four this morning. Grieving. Grieving. The sanctity of marriage is grounded in God himself. To break what God has brought together is grievous to him, and it hurts us as well. Malachi 2.16, this is what the Bible says. You don't have Malachi 2.16? Hey, take your Bibles to Malachi 2.16. Do you have it there in your notes? You might have it there in your notes. Do you have it there? 
Okay. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. I don't do this often, but I am going to use a verse from another version this morning. The modern English version, the MEV. Most of you that are King James only don't even know why you're King James only. Like the text it comes from. The MEV is a modern take on the text that the King James comes from. I don't use it often, but I do use it every once in a while. I just want you to see what the MEV says. That's what it says for the same verse. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. There's no other way to look at it, no way to sugarcoat it or anything of that nature. That's what the Bible says. Am I wrong on that? Am I wrong? I'm not wrong on that. All right, let's keep on going here. Now, look at what Jesus said. You say, well, why? Because of what it does. Look at what Mark 10, verse 9 says. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The word for joined means to be yoked together. Someone said it like this. Marriage is meant to be a yoke, not a joke. I think that's true. A yoke was used to maximize the work capacity of two animals. It's not, you might say in marriage, getting hitched, right? We use that phrase. Think of two animals yoked together and hitched to a heavy wagon. A Belgian draft horse is able to pull 8,000 pounds worth of weight by itself. But if you take two of them and they're trained to work together, they can pull 32,000 pounds. Think about that. A good relationship has a good reward and I want you to understand something today. If you're married today, be vigilant to guard your vows, determined to keep them, work at them. Your marriage matters to God, and it should matter to you. You should see your spouse today as a companion, the one who completes you, the one who you are to live in communion with, and make sure that you've done the leaving part. Make sure you've done the cleaving to one another and allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in your life to weave you and your spouse to one another. After hearing these things, the disciples, like they did often, wanted to go a little deeper on things. Look at verse number 10. And, and in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. Jesus, as he often does, Declares the heart of God with boldness. Now look at what he says. It's you say, why is Jesus so strong in what he says in verse 11 here? In verse 12, because he believes strongly in marriage. Marriage matters. Look at verse 11 and 12. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a man shall put away her husband... And be married to another, she committeth adultery. The use of adultery here goes right back 
to Exodus chapter 20 and one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you notice that Jesus gives the woman equal rights as the husband right there. You can read that and see that there. Before we go any further, and we might not get into that, those last few verses like I mentioned, I want to give you eight takeaways this morning on marriage and divorce. Number one, God does hate divorce. Because of the unresolved problems it reveals and the pain of the wounds it causes. Now, if we want to take Malachi in context where it was, do you guys remember we did a series through the book of Nehemiah? Remember how Nehemiah was trying to push the people to do right and all these different things? And then they married those they shouldn't, and then at the end of the book of Nehemiah, they were divorcing them? That's right around the time when God says these words. God does hate divorce. But number two, let me help you out today. God does not hate divorced people. Many of you are divorced, are suffering through some incredible pain right now. Whatever the circumstances were, God does not hate you. He loves you. If you're saved in this room today, you're his child. He loves you. And as we think about that, are you ready for number three? Divorce is not the God hates. I'm going to get a little personal here for a minute. About a year ago, we were dealing with something around this line in our church. I had some people come to me. Like, Pastor, this they're going through a divorce. How could you let them sing in church, one of them? How could you let them serve? And yet, the other was sowing discord among God's brethren. Does God hate that as well? Yes, he does. And when we start telling people they can't sing in church, or start saying they can't serve, now, being divorced, there are, you, you should not pastor. I think that's a clear biblical command. I don't think you should be a deacon in a church. I think th that's biblical. But outside of that function, those two functions, because it says the husband of one wife, you might say, well, that just means one at a time. If that's how you feel, you find somewhere and you do it that way, I'm going to take the Bible more literal than not, okay? Like, well, if you take it literal there, take it literal in other, just stop, just stop, please. Please stop. But this is the problem. We look at some and like, they shouldn't be allowed to do this or that, but then we allow other things to... Do you have pride in your heart today? God hates that too. Do you lie? God hates that one too. I'm not minimizing God hates divorce. We made that clear. God does not hate divorced people. He loves people. But I want you to realize something. Divorce does happen. And it's not the only thing that God hates. We look at the list, Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 19. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look. Ever give a proud look? I have. God hates it. A lying tongue. Have you ever lied? God hates it. Hands that shed innocent blood. Have an abortion? Ooh, we could go down that road too, huh? We'll save that. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. 
We can sugarcoat it, lump it any way you want to. God hates sin. He does. And divorce is wrong. Get that in your head today. It is wrong. But in this world, it happens. And it tears families apart. It tears, hurts the children. There's so much that it does. That the, the devastating effects of it is why God hates it so much. But God hates sin. That's where we need to be full of grace and truth. Number four, God does not forbid all divorce. Give you a couple references you can write down and look at later. 1 Corinthians 7, 15 teaches that if an unbelieving spouse wants to break it off, the believer can let him or her go. The case of unrepented adultery, the one who was wronged is not obligated to stay married. Matthew 5, 32, Matthew 19, 9. But having said all of that, God's heart is always for reconciliation, if possible, and restoration. And with God, all things are possible, correct? The death of a spouse also releases one from marriage. And let me be quick to add, if you're being abused or in danger in the marriage you're in, you should not be in that marriage as well. Number five, if you're planning to get married, get premarital counseling and make a purity pledge. Now here we go again. People come to me. Pastor, you married that couple and that girl's pregnant. Yeah. Say, well, why? You shouldn't do that. Did you lie at all last week? God hates that too. If we cast everybody out and we don't help people, where are they going to go to for help? Let's just cast them all aside. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it's supposed to be. And you say, well, what do you do? When a couple comes to me, and I'll give you an example. We had one a couple years ago. A young girl grew up in our church. She knows right and wrong. She knew right and wrong. She came to me very embarrassed. So, Pastor, we want to get married. We need to do things right. Will you marry us? I said I would. There are many pastors that I would never do that. And you do, you do you, okay? That's fine. I asked them to commit to one another to stay pure till they got married from that day forward. And I give premarital counseling. Say, did they stay pure from that day forward? It's not my job to check. That's between them and God, not me. That's between them and God. But we need, we need to strive for purity. And young people in the room, strive for purity in your relationships. Save it for the marriage night. We plan months for a wedding. And the wedding's over in 30 minutes. And you have pictures of how beautiful everything was. It's way more important to get premarital counseling and plan for your lifetime together. That's the only way I will marry someone. Premarital counseling, and they make a purity pledge. Next, number six, hold on to hope if your marriage is in a mess. Jesus loves to put hurting hearts back together. Come to him, let him help you through. Get counseling, get help. And let me just add this this morning. 
this is what happens a lot of times. There's one in the marriage who wants to get help earlier on, and there's one who doesn't. And then finally, when the one's ready to get help, the other one's given up and done. Get help before it's too late. Get help. Be willing to admit, and this is the thing, let's be honest. Every time it happens this way, it's all my spouse's fault. It is not. In marriage, there's two. If there's a problem in your marriage, it's both of you. Now, it might be a 90-10. It could be. But it's both of you. And the problem that we run into is we look at if my spouse did this, I could be happy. So if my spouse fixes this about themselves, my marriage will be fine. And the other one looks at if my spouse did these things, I would be happy. If you would get that out of your mind this morning and get your focus on making your spouse happy, what can I do to make Caroline happy? And I've noticed the happier I make her, the happier I am. Happy wife, happy life. Ever hear that one before? There is a lot of truth to that right there. But we get our eyes in the wrong places, but hold on to hope if your marriage is a mess. Number seven, deal with any unfinished business. Deal with it. Perhaps you need, let's be honest, if you're divorced here today, have you asked God for forgiveness? It's wrong. Maybe there's some forgiveness you need to extend to a former spouse so you can move on with your life. Maybe there's reconciliation with children. Or maybe you're a child of someone that divorced. Feelings you have inside need to be dealt with. You need to deal with it. Deal with any unfinished business. Number eight. The church has not always been a healing community. A lot of times, in, in some instances, the church has been overly harsh on individuals who've been stung by divorce. And from my perspective, we need to love people and help them, not cast them aside. It's all right, 940. I'm not going to go any further on this last thought, but I will give you this. I think it's no accident that the very next four verses deal with children. Because divorce weighs heavily on children. Now, let's give you one more verse before we're done. Do you have Malachi 2.15? So this was, remember, God hates divorce, the verse we read? This is the verse right before that. And did not he make one, yet he had the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. The godly seed, you think about children, you know who is devastatedly affected by divorce? the children are. And I do not think there's any accident that right after this is talked about, Jesus blesses the children. 
And I'm just going to give you these four points, and we're going to walk out this morning and be done today. But the first thought is this about children. Bring your children to Jesus. They brought their children to Jesus. He touched them. And the idea here is the children were being brought to him. And let me, parents, it's important that you bring your children, your grandchildren to Jesus. You get them in the Word of God each day. You pray with them. You get them in church. You get them into a Sunday school or kids' classes. You get them into vacation Bible school. You get them to Jesus. Far too many parents today are concerned about getting their kids to sports, and those sports end up taking their kids away from Jesus. Sports are important. They teach a lot of good life lessons. Do them if you can, but don't let it substitute getting your kids to Jesus. Number two, beware of the attitudes that hinder children. The disciples rebuked them for bringing their children here, sharply punishing them. Next, number three, we need to become like children to receive the kingdom of God. And what do you mean by that? Man, children have a lot to teach us about faith. They're dependent, curious, and they trust easy. And the older you get, the less you trust, the more independent you want to be. And to come to Jesus, you need that childlike faith. How many people have I talked to before and they hear the stories and they hear the Bible and they're like, I just don't believe that's possible. And I go, as a kid, you would believe that. You need a childlike faith. But anyways, and then number four, Bless children warmly, and Jesus did that. He took them up in his arms, and he blessed them. He f- and the word blessed, it's fervently blessed repeatedly. Jesus loved kids. And just remember, children are a gift from God, a blessing from God, and thank God for them. And I know this morning as we close, there's one of the sermons where the different hats had to come on, and I get that. The Bible is true. God hates divorce, but God loves you. And God can pick up your pieces and help you. And you say, well, where do I go from here? God will guide you. God will help you. Let him do that. So, Pastor, I'm on my second marriage, and it's just so much different. I can, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to use this example. Mark and Mona are both strong Christians. Their marriage now is much better than their first marriages, and there were ish- and we could go through a lot of deals, de- details there. The difference today is what God has done in their lives. And God can do that in any marriage and in anyone's life and help and make things work. You say, well, I've been divorced. I'm never going to be happy again. I see two people that are. And I believe if you handle it God's way and get things right with him and learn from your mistakes, God can bless and you can still have a good life. Father, I thank you.